There's a basic rule that applies to a lot of activities or sports, which is simply this. Look where you want to go, not where you don't want to go. Or some people would say, where the head looks, the body will follow. For example, if you're out skiing and you need to ski in a small gap between two trees, a ski instructor will tell you to look at the space between the trees where you want your skis to go, not at the trees themselves. Because if you look at the trees, then you will most likely ski right into them. The same thing on a bicycle. I remember when I was in elementary school, every spring my school would host a bike rodeo. We didn't have a bike race because that probably would have been too dangerous, but we did have these contests to see who could steer their bike around pylons or who could do a lap of the parking lot fastest. And there was one contest that involved trying to ride your bike in a straight line. So they would have these two parallel lines painted in the parking lot about six or eight inches apart. And these two lines were about 30 or 40 yards long. And all you had to do was ride with your wheels between the lines and whoever made it to the end, or at least the farthest without going out of bounds, won. And nobody could do it. And every year I would start concentrating all my energy as carefully as I could, with a death grip on the handlebars trying to hold my wheel steady, pedaling slowly and methodically, looking down over the handlebars trying to prevent my front wheel from veering outside of the lines. And I would get maybe five feet before I would be out, as did everyone else. Maybe the person who took the prize got eight or nine feet before he too went out. No one got anywhere near the finish line. And it was frustrating because in principle it seemed so simple. Just ride your bike in a straight line. Then finally in the fifth grade, one of my classmates figured it out. And unlike the rest of us, he started back about 10 yards from the starting point and he got up ahead of steam going as fast as he could. And he aimed his tire between the lines. He kept his head up the whole way, not looking at the lines, but looking at the end point that he wanted to reach. And he just glided right down all 30 or 40 yards, letting the momentum do the work. This guy knew something that St. Peter didn't. Look where you want to go, not where you don't want to go. Peter could walk on the water when he concentrated on Jesus. But the second he started paying more attention to the wind and the storm, he began to sink. And it doesn't make sense. After all, he's walking on water. It's miraculous. If Jesus is going to give him the grace to walk on water, certainly he's going to protect him from the wind and the storm. But unfortunately, that's often not the way we think. We don't always see God's benevolence his all-encompassing love towards us. So even when people are aware of and believe in the grace of God in some respects, they often imagine that it is arbitrarily limited in other respects. I remember I was reading a book once where a priest was talking about how when he was young, 
he committed what he believed might have been a mortal sin. Yet, he delayed going to confession out of embarrassment. Then, before he knew it, his family was ready to leave on vacation, and that involved getting on a plane. So the night before they left for their trip, he scrambled around to find a priest to hear his confession, because all he could imagine was the plane plunging out of the sky, crashing into the ground, and then him just continuing on downward with that mortal sin on his soul. Now, of course, if we have committed a serious sin, it is always critical that we seek confession as soon as we are able. But it's also important to understand that God is not an ogre, just waiting for us to screw up so that he can choose that moment to damn us to hell. If God had wanted us gone from this world, he doesn't need to engineer a plane crash or a car wreck or something dramatic. He could just will us out of existence. But he doesn't, even when we commit a sin, even a horrible sin. Rather, it's God that is the one that is urging us to contrition. He wants us to go to confession, not for his sake, but for ours. Because he really wants to forgive us. He really wants us to be with him in the kingdom of heaven. (coughs) And of course, our faith teaches us that if someone really could not get to confession but was truly contrite, we believe that God's grace would forgive them. We are bound to seek out the sacraments, but we know as well that God is not bound by them. We always have to have our eyes on what God wants for us, to focus on who we are and who we are meant to be. That means being aware of the reality of sin in our lives, of course, but it also means not letting ourselves be defined by it. The danger is that, for some of us, we begin to believe that God speaks to us only through our sins, that he sees us only as sinners, that our relationship to Christ is defined primarily by our sins. But like Jesus in today's gospel, even when Peter, even when he tells Peter, O ye of little faith, he reaches out his arm to save him from sinking. We see this in the life of the people of Israel, our forefathers in faith. It is why St. Paul writes, They are Israelites. There's the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. There's the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is over all. This wouldn't be in the New Testament if it wasn't supposed to mean something to us as Christians. Israel had a covenant with God, and they broke it in every way possible. Yet they were still God's chosen ones, and he still continued to reveal himself through them, even bringing Christ into the world through the house of David. This should teach us to see how loving God is, Because the most amazing thing about God is how merciful he was to them and is to us. The key to understanding that, I think, goes back to the idea that we need to look where we want to go. We should want to go to God. That doesn't mean ignoring the things of this world. We need to live well in the here and the now. We need to do the right things, loving God and loving our neighbor. 
but we need to see everything in this world in the light of the world we are meant for, God's kingdom. That's the thing that Israel understood, at least in her better moments. We see this in Elijah in the first reading. Elijah saw winds that could level a mountain, but he knew that these winds were not the Lord, nor was a great earthquake or an engulfing fire. These are all aspects of the natural world that God in his glory created. They might even be at times specific instruments of his divine will. But God is not these things. That's what made the religion of Israel different from all the other nations. Other religions were animistic or pantheistic. They saw God, or very often multiple gods, in the things of this world. They didn't separate creator and creation. That's why other cultures around Israel would eat the flesh and drink the blood of animals as a religious ritual. The spirit of God was in the animals, and so the men consumed them to gain animalistic powers. And these animal powers made them, in their own estimation, more like the divine. But this is totally backwards from the truth of seeing God as the transcendent creator of the universe, with human beings, not animals, in the image and likeness of God. It's not animalistic powers that we should seek, but rather powers that highlight our unique rational nature, because this is something that we share with God. To have love, justice, mercy, forgiveness, understanding, These are the points at which divine and human natures can overlap. And that is why our Eucharistic sacrifice is unique. We offer bread and wine, and through them, Christ comes to us in these same species. Not because he's limited, but because we are. Not because God is in wheat or grapes, but because God, who is the transcendent creator of the universe, uses these means to proportion himself to our limited human experience. But because he promised himself in the Eucharist, we can have confidence that that is where he is, and that is where, amongst other places, we can find him. And it's he who comes into the world, not as an earthquake or as a fire, but as a tiny whispering sound. This is my body, which is given for you.